Hi, everyone. Welcome to Such a Good Feeling. My guest today is one of my favorite producers with an incredible history of superbly made records for a wide variety of artists, from Gabrielle Applin, Tom Walker, to Kylie and Zara Larson. He's also responsible for one of my favorite records of all time, a record that when I first heard it, I literally almost crashed the car because it just was so overwhelming, which was Heaven by Emily Sande. So it's a real honor to welcome Mike Spencer. Hi, Mike. How are you? Thank you very much for that intro, Steve. I'm, it's very flattering. I hope I can live up to that. And it's, it's, pretty, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> we were just talking before we came on that, you know, producers such as us are somewhat uncomfortable talking about ourselves. But um, it, I, I, the reason I like doing this is because uh, people who don't work in our industry, you know, get a kind of glimpse into our world and, and you know, things that we just say and think might just be second nature to us can be really, really helpful to um, to people listening. So, uh, so where are you talking to us from today? I'm talking from my studio, from the Lark's Tongue. So we're uh, I was in London for for most of my adult life, but um, we took on an old derelict dairy farm out in Buckinghamshire about like sort of fourteen, fifteen years ago. Now, with the intention of of just changing at the way that at the time recorded music was having less and less value if, if you remember everyone was pirating everything and and it just seemed almost a futile pursuit and i was in a tiny tiny little room um and and in the bottom end of bermondsey and it was a uh, it seemed like we're working in an inspirational aspirational medium but it was not didn't feel like that so artists that were working with me i just thought there was a weight of expectation that they, let's say, moderately or had had success on a previous record or album were suddenly in my tiny little bathroom-sized studio. Just felt like a sort of disappointment. So we elected to take this leap of faith and take on this place here and see whether we could actually turn it into something that was aligned with what our sort of value sets were here. And actually, one thing that seemed significant at the time, and it is increasingly important, I think, and important, for us all is is in the environment and climate change and so this studio in in about a month's time we will be will the final piece of the puzzle be in place and this will be an entirely off-grid environment so records made here will be made entirely the energy will be derived entirely from the sun and the heating derived from the field from a crowd source heat pump so we've achieved what's been a sort of almost lifelong ambition of mine to be able to our contribution my contribution here to making records is that people making records here uh, it is as it were not 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 just a zero carbon footprint but climate positive we sequester more carbon here than we emit as a business and that's a really important obviously an increasingly important agenda and i think it's a contemporary um a significant uh agenda for the arts and for musicians that have often been at the forefront of progress and social movement. And I think this is an important uh, thing for us to all get behind. So I'm just making my small contribution to that. That is amazing. Um, I think you're absolutely right with that. And also, I think there is something in the, I mean, if anyone wants to go and check out the Lark's Tongue studio, it, it, it looks beautiful and my favorite thing from the bio is this little bit that says every morning the geese and ducks come up from the lake to the kitchen door for the breakfast whilst Atticus the Macaw free flies outside returning when he's ready for his. And that to me just reminds me of, of everything that I loved, um, from the time that I spent from a lot of time that I spent at real world, which had that yeah. instant yeah. feeling of 
you know, and, and actually the creativity that comes from not being in a city, from being around nature and, and from the musicians that you work with and the artists that you work with, um, just spending time in a place and really being able to experiment rather than rushing to get into, into London. Oh, I've only got three hours and then I've got to go and do something else. It's not, that's not a great way to make music sometimes. No, I, I, it was always a concern. To be honest, though, it, it, so I kept my studio in London for another year after we were here because I was terrified of severing my links to London. One of the considerations was, firstly, would people come out here? And secondly, would the environment and being in a natural environment, you know, my next-door neighbour here is a mile over a mile away. And um, so we really are quite, we're, not, we're only an hour out of London, but we're still, it has a remote feel to it. And one of my concerns was, would that inform the music? Would that actually inform the style of music? Would it all be sort of tambourines and ribbons? And <laughs> our whole idea of any kind of urban influence would just evaporate and everything here would just be organic. And, and that's not the case at all. It's like the whole idea of a, a hopefully a transparent recording environment. And my role as a producer is to realise other people's culture and ambitions and their objectives and ideals and aspiration ambition not mine so so actually it's been a, a, a very transparent environment because as you say that people aren't uh, distracted by city concerns and what they have to do They're, you can only focus on nature and music here and so obviously the people the artists that come in bring their culture and everything that informs what they do they take that they bring that with them so so whatever if I was making my own records, it probably might now all be tambourines and rivers. I don't know, but that's not what my that's not what my task is, is it? I'm tasked with helping other people visualize theirs. Yeah, although the most recent record, well, one of the most recent records that you made there was was getting back with Gabrielle Applin for Phosphorin, which seemed very, um, very, very organic in its nature, and um, and has, I mean, has the most beautiful sound to it and it is so warm and and and, and wonderful but um it, it it felt like something that you could really just have the time to just play with stuff yeah. make make sounds actually rather than doing the kind of the thing that a lot of people and, and there's nothing wrong with kind of going and grabbing a sample from splice and doing something but there's something really special about making something from scratch isn't there absolutely well as it happens that so myself and 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 Gabrielle Applin were well, obviously we worked on together on English Rain when she was really young when she was signed to um, EMI and and, and, and Parlophone and um, when we sort of got back to it we'd worked bits and pieces on other things but got back together fully on this record and what was great about it, it was exa exactly as you say, it was that we're very aligned on environmental issues and it's really important to her how we're treating the world and animals and animal rights. It's really significant to her. But also the other thing that informed how that album worked was that it was, you were talking earlier about um, lockdown and that your podcast starting in lockdown. And actually what, what happened in that period, obviously that's of huge cultural significance, what happened in lockdown, because we were all locked down. That's quite a unique circumstance for any human being to function in. And some people um, thrived on it and other people's didn't. And for her, what happened to her was that she, she got this place in, in Glastonbury and was locked down there with her piano and wrote an album's worth of very autobiographical 
beautifully heartfelt songs. Whereas other artists I know suffered terribly in lockdown because they didn't have the stimuli that they needed to write interesting things. But out of that, I felt, and we talked about this a lot, I went to Glastonbury a couple of times to talk to her at length about what was important. And I think what we're often trying to do with any creative pursuit and in music is try to create inevitably timeless things. But at the same time, sometimes it's also important to document what is going on at that time and what is the cultural significance of of something, the minutiae and the small details and things. You know, Sir Samuel Peeps, who diarized, was an important diarist and, and, and talking about like sort of his bowel movements and what was going on that morning became one of the important uh, diarists of, of, of the Reformation and a really important English document. And I th- and so what we thought with this was that she'd written these songs in complete isolation. And so as w- and as we were coming out of that, we felt as though the album should be an antidote to digitization and everyone in f- everyone uh, communicating with the world and each other through screens and through an artificial environment. So it was very much about coming together. So it was designed to be organic and very human but not in a retro context, but rather in a of-its-time context. So everything had to have a physicality to it. Everything had to be people in a room playing. And also, we were dogmatic about any artificial sounds that we did get off splice, or if we did generate artificially through synthesis or samples, were then moved through air, through some kind of transducer, or I went out and bought an old Leslie rotating speaker, which a rotary speaker, which I've always loved the idea of. And so we were putting sound, everything was re-recorded through a natural environment. And that record started in real world, as it happens, and you mentioned that earlier. We we did the first week there, and that was one of the first, that was still, if you remember, I think it was on the second or third, well, the lockdowns sort of get confusing, but there was a time when studios were allowed to work. We were, were allowed to work, weren't we, following guidelines. And so we took advantage of that, and we went to real world, and everyone was all... We were all testing and masked up, but it was the first time we'd all been out in an environment. It was a really beautiful thing of musicians coming together again to do what we all do best. And it was a really beautiful thing. And so my task then as a producer was to come back to the last time with that data and try to manifest that uh, vibe and the beautiful atmosphere that we created in that studio, try to actually articulate that and get that to communicate as a recorded piece. And that what took a week to record essentially at Real World took then a year and a half to cajole and corral into a format that I felt did communicate that. Oh, it absolutely did. It's a really beautiful record. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to her later on because I think that girl is a jewel. And um, I think uh, it's interesting there's, there's that people kind of know her for one or two things, but actually whenever they go back and look at the back catalogue, it's um it, it, it's astonishing um what's the, the when you're growing up what's the musical landscape of your house yeah so it's kind of weird so my i'm by far and away the youngest in in a family of of, of the three two two siblings there were three of us and being a bit older myself my parents came, I, everything felt like a throwback so I felt as though I was, I was in an isolated rural environment on the south coast in a little village between Chichester and Arundel and um, and it was there was a lot of music played in the house a lot of classical music and and, and stuff but not nothing that felt there was no direct connection 
with my parents and family to music. They weren't musical themselves, although and I, I remember this sort of early th- thing where there was a, a, a student, um, sort of a, a student placement of um, a singer-songwriter who, um, from America who, who came in and, and actually took guitar lessons and would sing and got all of the parents to sing songs. And I had this sort of strange kind of uh, juxtaposition of this very kind of sort of... Uh, English kind of rural environment with these parents singing kind of Joan Byers songs and sort of uh, Aretha Franklin and protest songs like We Shall Overcome and things. I was thinking, well, what are you all trying to overcome? What obstacles are in, in your lives and in your way that's going to... And, and so the things that were representative of, of sort of uh, draft resistance or the civil rights movement. And and at the same time, I was listening at, at, at night. I, I'm old enough to, there was the, Radio Caroline was off the air, but I was still kind of sort of fascinated by the idea of pirate radio and the idea, that, and, and, but Radio Luxembourg was transmitting well, from, from Luxembourg. And um, with a powerful transmitter, it was the only thing that was actually a technically an illegal station transmitting at night in the UK. And, um, and I had one of those, you know, tiny little transistor radios with a single mono earplug, and I would listen at night to 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 rate to, to to Radio Luxembourg. And what I felt was that what I was sort of slowly seeing was that there was a world beyond my world and what I was able to experience in this sort of rural backwater, and that ever there were these small indicators of a of a of the music was something really powerful and a really powerful medium for progress and for change and for a human shift. And a lot of the sort of echo of the 60s was translated and still reverberating in the 70s. So sort of catching a lot of that sea of change. And music seemed to be... One of the things that was really interesting was a record that hung around at home, which fascinated me. There was quite a lot of classical stuff around, but there was a record called Switched on Bark by... um, Walter Carlos, who became Wendy, Wendy Carlos. Yeah. And I loved that record so much. So suddenly there was classical music played on monophonic... Are you familiar with that record? Mm-hmm. Do you know that? Yeah, fantastic. So I don't think it's, I think it's quite difficult to get hold of now. I don't think it's actually even on Spotify. But um, what an amazing thing that, that, again, it was this sort of indicator that sort of about expression and dignity, that, that there was somebody who'd done this record on Moog synthesizers but it also transitioned in the late 60s from Walter to Wendy Carlos. And that also I found really empowering. I was thinking, right, this is, music's not just decadence and sort of flimsy kind of sort of anti-system and anti-establishmentarianism. It's actually the, 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 the seat of something really important and for everything from LGBTQ rights through to the civil rights movement, through to draft resistance, through to just social progress and... And so it seemed to me that it was a really early calling for me. And I was fascinated, absolutely fascinated by radio. The idea that I was listening at night to something that was communicated to me at two o'clock in the morning from another country seemed so romantic and so powerful. So I became um, fascinated by things like sound reproduction and radio and the technical and the physics behind music and propagation and dissemination and also what that meant culturally as well. So I just became consumed with these kind of facets of music. So it was very much my calling, although there was no no indication. That was just seen that following a music career 
in my household was just seen as wayward and, and a pointless exercise, as it probably has been for a lot of us. It um, has. It, it's so funny you say that about, I just had a real sort of flashback there. So I had a little gray, possibly a binatone AM radio. Right. Yeah. And actually yeah. you reminded me that there was, I mean, it's almost like that they'd invented the kind of ear pod before the ear pod because it was one single. It was. Pod yeah. And it plugged into the side. And I, I had a very, very similar thing. I mean, actually, in the end, I ended up, so one of the guys that was on Luxembourg that ended up doing a lot there was, was, ended up being my boss in my first studio, which is a guy from Tony oh, wow. Prince. Who, wow. Uh, so, um, but I was similar thing listening to Luxembourg. And it's kind of hard. I think for people to imagine this now when the world is available to all of us at any particular point and any music you can get whenever you want. But then the kinds of records and the kinds of music that, that people like you and I were seeking out just were not being played on commercial radio. And you were relying wholly on these pirate stations to find these sounds that would, would, you would never hear anywhere else. No, and you realise that actually with with things like that, so because pirate radio became another important facet of sort of what I've sort of thought about and how this whole thing of sort of the subversive nature of music, and that's exactly what it was. So, you know, I think whenever it was in the late 20s or 30s when BBC controlled a monopoly of the airwaves, that actually apart from the pirate radio station, apart from things like Caroline and Luxembourg, there was no penetration for anything that wasn't... And although we've always thought of the BBC and we've been sort of told that it's very sort of impartial, but nevertheless, it is a state organ. And so therefore, it is for the masses, paid for by the masses, and not to criticise it. And it goes to great lengths to try to be a positive force. But nevertheless, it was about a monopoly. And so you were right, you had to seek these things out and they weren't always easy to find. And so it's a, and that again, just so it seemed to me that it felt like that that music seemed like kind of such an important force for progress, yet actually was always faced with a level of oppression and suppression. And I think that actually, as musicians, certainly in the UK, I've always felt like that. That actually we didn't have proper jobs. This was always something that was seen as a bit subversive. That actually. It wasn't really worthy. As my brother-in-law is a farmer in Suffolk, always is quick to remind me that you can't fucking eat music. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. That is, that's very true. Um, at, at what point are you, do you pick up an instrument? When this um, exchange student came into my primary school when I was about seven or eight, and actually I found... The, much as I thought it was incongruous, all of these parents and her singing protest songs in an English rural village, I nevertheless found the passion behind it and behind the lyric, and there was something forceful about her delivery of it that I found it. I'd never really heard anything quite like it. So that, and she did guitar lessons, so I learned how to play the guitar from that point on. And I, I didn't think I was ever particularly great at it, but it was just enough to to formulate ideas and to write songs and to later on in my teens to get into bands and and that's where that's where it sort of came from really in in your kind of teenage years what give me a couple of examples of the kind of artists and bands that were you know adorning your wall or you know that you were playing a lot i mean who were you who were your absolute obsessions when you were a teenager yeah so my brother was uh um listening so my Brother and sister, my sister was into a lot of kind of sort of disco and funk. So it was anything from kind of sort of Sister Sledge and George Benson and Earth, Wind and Fire. And my brother was very much into sort of progressive rock, Pink Floyd, things like bands like Golden Earring and 
um, focus and all, all that. So I th- and anything that I, I I was really interested in things that were just moving things along. It was such an interesting experimental time for music in all different genres. That there was a, it felt like there was a real force in all sorts of different ways. And I was really into the whole hybridization, the cross fertilization of everything. So to bring all of these things, and, and that's what I always wanted the bands that I was in um, to sort of to 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 to, to pursue that. And then there's another thing I remember actually early on when in the my band played in the, the the girls' high school gym, and the crowd actually trashed the place. I say trashed the place. I think they damaged a few wall bars and like that. And we were banned from school from playing in the school. And again, that kind of sort of made me just go. I thought that was fantastic. Not 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 damaging places or wanton vandalism, but the whole idea that this 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 sort of movement, this thing that could be that forceful and that exciting and that 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 and 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 I was following a scientific education and career at that time which actually I like the idea of the rules and that's the always struck me as the beauty of music that actually it's an unregulated force for change and progress and it is subversive and it is dangerous and it is risky but it also complies with rules of music and modality and physics of it and I've always liked the idea of that and I still sort of pursue that as a producer you know by all means set fire to things and trash the place but make sure your guitar's in tune and you're exhibiting good mic technique <laughs> That yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously, you say you were in a few bands. Um, again, musically, what what were your kind of main inspirations in those bands? I mean, who were your contemporaries? Uh, well, I think that actually around that time, there's anything from sort of a lot of the earlier progressive rock stuff really fascinated me because again, it seemed like it was right out there. And a lot of sort of later Beatles and things like sort of Sergeant Peps and stuff. The stuff where I was, this was my cons- what I was consumed with. It was the was alternativism and things that were risky and dangerous. But as long as I felt there was intention to it, as long as it was well communicated, I've never been into the idea of indie independent music for its just its sake. If it meant that the bar was lower, I've always wanted things to be really well done. But risky those risks within that framework, and so anything from Depeche Mode, U2, around that period, those were sort of two. There were also a lot of the, the early prog rock stuff, but also a lot of disco and funk. So everything from all of Quincy Jones's output through to things like sort of Sister Sledge and Earth, Wind and Fire. I loved that that that, that they execution. It seemed so. Uh, the, the I just loved the formula and the idea of the, of dance and movement and everything that, that just sort of went with that and how it, just yeah, just everything about that just felt great to me. There was a really interesting time, I think, around then as well, if you're talking about that sort of early 80s time where, you know, there were, I mean, Quincy Jones is a really interesting one because there's not that many producers that make records, but um, I remember, you know, even when Quincy made The Dude and you're like, I mean, it's a Quincy record, but it's got a million people on it, but it's still a producer-based record. Yeah. Um, and there isn't a hair on that record's head that is an, out of place, yet it sounds very fresh still today. Yeah, as do all his records. He always had a sound that... that who was the um, engineer that did a lot of his stuff? I can't remember the guy's name. Died a little while back, a couple of years Bruce ago. Bruce Fedian. That's right, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Always amazing. And as you say, they just have a kind... And there's a thing that goes back to what I was saying earlier, that I feel as though if you really work to get things right and to get things perfect, you can create timeless records without actually trying to be so earnest and worthy that it's not of its time. 
if that makes sense. And I think Quincy always achieved that. And that's always been an ambition of mine. You're trying to actually take advantage. That's why I've never been, the idea of being retro or gratuitously retrospective and dogmatic about using vintage equipment or vintage things in order to sound vintage. I don't really see the point in that. That was often how the records that people are then emulating or they wish to sound like were actually at the forefront of making records and trying to use multi-track techniques and mic techniques and modern mics to achieve something that was state-of-the-art at that time. And I think that actually what we all need to be trying to do is just make a perfect version of what you're trying to achieve that actually is informed by your culture and your time and where you're at and the things and the forces that are applied to you at that moment, even if that is through recording limitations or if it is through lockdown or... or and Because there's always ways that open up ways of doing things and create and challenges and obstacles that create other opportunities. And that's how things progress, isn't it? It really is, yeah. So what is the first time that you set foot in a studio? Oh, yeah, good question. So I, so what my band, when we... Um, we reformed my South Coast band in London which actually um, seemed like a great idea at the time, but actually, and I felt as though we really didn't sound that great. We were working in a small studio in Surbiton, and um, and I felt that actually we sat, I felt as though we didn't sound great because actually the producer and the engineer weren't good enough. And so the because I felt as though I could do that and I had a kind of understanding of it, my band would perform better and function better, have a better career outlook and a better career trajectory if I could engineer and produce. So that's what I set about learning how to do, only to realise maybe two and a half, three years later that the reason that my band didn't sound very good was actually not because of the producer or engineer, but simply we weren't very good. And so actually, but by then I was on a road to sort of realising that actually my calling was was in, in recording and studios. And although actually I've for a number of years had a constant dalliance with being in bands and continuing to play and that always felt like kind of something I wanted to do. I've run in parallel with that, just being in studios and being an engineer or being a producer because I, and realising other people's dreams and I've never felt frustrated by that. I always felt there was an outlet for me musically in what I was doing in my bands and things like that. But only because eventually I was in a band called Definition of Sound. I don't know if you remember well, Definition yeah, of Sound. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and so that was, I'd been working in studios for a number of years when I became so inextricably linked in their production process that they invited me to be a member of the band. So I toured with Definition of Sound. I was a member of the band. We were signed to Universal, to NCA Records for a period of time. And so that that got out, that got that part of my... Uh, desire out of my system the idea that i'd needed to be a performing musician went with that so when we got dropped which we eventually did that was it for me i i i haven't been in bands since and i don't feel so i'm not as a, as a producer i'm not a frustrated musician really trying to put my print on other people's records because i really want to be them um it's not like that at all i i actually really love what i'm doing and i feel as though i had enough of a performing not performing background, performing experience, a few European tours and a few UK tours and a couple of sort of like top 40s and a, just outside of the top 20. It was just enough for me to go, okay, that's, that's okay. I've kind of done that now. And so when we were dropped, the only thing I could do, I felt, was be a producer. That was what I... So I, we had to separate all the debts out and bits and pieces and I hung on to the 
I hung on to the debt and the studio and just got going as a producer. And were you, just going back to when you were saying, you know, you, you, you fell into a little bit, fell into the fact that you had a band and they needed to record stuff. So you put yourself forward. Um, I mean, were you just teaching yourself from the studio perspective? I mean, was, was there someone there to learn from or was it very much in at the deep end? What does this, what does this do? I think it was in at the deep end, really, because I, I sort of, I think a lot of us sort of blagged our way a bit at various times. And, and that was me suggesting that to the bloke who ran the studio, I knew more than I actually did. And, um, and it was a sufficiently small, it was a 16 track studio in the outskirts of London. So it wasn't like we were getting really highbrow artists in where I could really cock things up. So I could learn on the job. To, to an extent. And actually, he was, the bloke who ran the studio was very forward-thinking in terms of how he viewed, he would build a lot of his own equipment, which I thought was really interesting. He would build his own equalizers and compressors, which gave me an insight into what goes on and what the physics of and the electronics are in these machines, which I found really insightful. But he was also really up on early sampling had a, a, a Greengate DS3 which was an early sampler which was using an Apple II plus machine and we could, it was, worked like a Fairlight but it was a poor man's Fairlight and so I had a kind of sort of working knowledge um, of of sort of quite upfront music and then, then I went into um, a place called the Arc Studios which was run by Rick Buckler from The Jam and I became the kind of rookie engineer there but by that time I didn't have any qualifications but I did know enough about what I was doing and um and I always remember actually it was really interesting that bringing in because at the time there were the uh, Atari 1040 STs had become the, the sort of go-to machine for for MIDI and sequencing and I brought one into the studio go look I was so I was the young bloke in the 16 track and the chief engineer was running the 24 track and I said look computers you know this is where it's at i'm going to bring mine in here let's get let's get going and i was actually reprimanded for it by the chief engineer of the art studios going computers you you need to be learning about mic technique and fader position equalization and music's never going to be made on computers and take that thing home <laughs> which, wow. I, which i did and i remember thinking yeah what was i thinking you're right i should have been learning more more traditional ways of doing things but of course yeah Anyway, this a, but yeah, so I just sat that at home and just did everything. And that sort of actually made me just go, okay, well, actually, let me just do this independently and and privately in the space of my own home. That got me back into kind of sort of making music myself and bands and and and, and going that that way around. So I ran again once once again, these two channels opened up. One was my professional working environment as an engineer, and the second one was me making music at home and Trying to trying to move things along as a musician and as an artist. I um I often say that uh, it, it's those times at the beginning when no one's watching or listening, which is great when to make all the mistakes, you know. And I think very similarly, my first studio was sixteen track kind of desk, and you know the the revelation of once you've learned one fader, you've kind of learned them all because they're just duplicates. But um. I think having that time to play, um, and obviously this is a long time ago, but having that time to play in a studio and just try, you know, sending something to a bus or just trying, just playing with things when it, it matters, but it doesn't matter in such a way that it does, you know, in a similar way to what it does in the future is really important. So um, I think that's, uh, 
that that's really really valuable and and i think also the thing with teaching is i think you can be taught to a certain point but um ultimately you either know what sounds good or you or what or you don't know what sounds good and i don't think that can be taught no i think you're right and i think it's an, we're at an interesting time now where uh to 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 people who if you our age really there weren't many educational opportunities to to be taught really and that's not the case now now everyone can go and get a degree in music production or contemporary music writing or songwriting any number of things and i do sort of worry about that slightly where how is that taught and how does that work and you know if, if you're at the forefront of physics and you go to imperial college to do it you you are working with people at the absolute forefront of research in 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 that discipline and that's not necessarily the case in music and actually the only way to really learn that is to be in studios and of course that isn't an opportunity that's presented to young people so there's the only kind of sort of channel to go down is through through educational processes And and i don't know i don't know whether that's I guess it is, but you can. And then on the other, on the other hand, you can pick up a load of stuff from YouTube. And I continue to learn from YouTube. I find myself going, "Well, how do I actually do that?" And there'll be someone out there telling you how to do it. So I guess we've just got a different way of learning now, haven't we? Yeah, we do. And I'm the same with the with the YouTube stuff. And actually, I was really in. in uh, I was really happy to see. I was at, um, something recently for Production Futures in Nottingham, and it was in a, a space there. And I walked downstairs and there was a massive Neve console and a 24 track analog machine and all the wow. things that no one's ever going to use anymore. But it, the point was to sort of teach the, 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 how to kind of use it and what it did and, you know, just, just to play really. And, um, yeah. and I think if you can get an idea, cause I think again, it's down to as far as kind of what to do in studio, what not to do in the studio. I always remember when I was at Salmon, you know, we were, there were a lot of people that were watching things rather than listening to things, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And then my engineer there, a guy called Paul Wright, who's, who's fantastic. He started just putting, um, like just covering up VUs to say, well, don't look at it. Yeah. Don't, yeah. Listen to it. doesn't matter. Like even with the compressor, I remember the quad compressor in the middle when we were making, I mean, this is the nineties. So we we're making kind of big dance records and stuff. And it would be, does it sound good? Yes. And you'd take the thing off and it was almost in the red <laughs> yeah, and you, yeah. and your eyes would say, oh, it can't possibly. And it was like, but does it sound good? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's the thing that I try and say to anybody now is it don't, there's no specific theory or way of this is how, of a, how to record a vocal. This is how to do this. It's like, you know, Steve Lipson has got a fantastic way of, of, of kind of putting this. I've spoken to him on here and, and, and a few people have as well. And he's very much like, well, look, whatever, whatever mic, whatever compressor, does it, sa- does it sound good? Yeah, yeah. It's the only thing that matters. But the, the way the discipline has, has shifted, as you're saying, a lot of things that people wouldn't use anymore, but certain techniques that obviously sort of translate through to where we are now, but what the, what the original, what, the, what those things are derived from, the whole cut and paste thing. And I remember doing sessions with Gus Dudgeon, the producer, produced things like sort of Space Oddity and these amazing records and working with him as an engineer, which I found terrifying because actually he would be absolutely kind of objective focused. And so if he would go, well, you know what? The second chorus feels better than the first. The drums on the second chorus feel better than the first. So um, we would um, 
cut that back. That would be cut back into the first chorus, but that's actually putting the, t- the that's the two-inch tape. And sometimes we're from a 48-track. That's doing that twice, cutting that reel of tape, writing on China Graph that that was the second chorus, putting that tape on the floor, and then splicing that back in into the position of the first chorus, which now, of course, you just think, well, nobody would obviously, you'd be absolutely mad to try and do that. But I remember thinking the responsibility of that was huge, and actually he would be confident enough to know that this is the recording that you can, if you trash that, if you fold the tape or you don't get the splice right or something's wrong or you didn't get the thing, then you've, not only have you just cocked that edit up, you've probably cocked the entire recording up as well. So it's like, it was a kind of one-way street. And I found that it's just like an amazing thing. And again, you're sort of hugely limited by, or, or rather we weren't. You'd think that you were limited by circumstance and by technology, but actually producers such as him would go, actually, we're not limited by anything at all. And it's like, we just do whatever we want and find ways around it, which I thought was amazing. Multi-track editing, uh, it's not for the faint of, I mean, thank God no one has to do it now. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I think multi-track editing and also um, that thing in the old days where if you wanted to get a reverse reverb, you had to turn the tape over, put the reverb on it record it on a track which was the opposite end of the so you had to work out the maths of where that track is yeah hope that you hadn't gone over anything specifically the time code and yeah. then <laughs> i mean it really i can't i mean talk about danger and I, this is probably like weird for now so i'm gonna just go oh we just put a plug in on that's fine absolutely but. well snare replace you could actually replace a snare using um a bell bd80 um, yes. And it had a 21 millisecond delay. And so you would actually say, it is the first studio sampler, as far as I was aware, that you could actually pick that snare that sounded really good in the middle eight, take that snare, um, sample that into the Bell BD80, which had maybe a sort of, I don't know, a f- maybe a one second sample time. You could, I think you get a card that could increase that, but it was that sort of short. Well, you knew it had a 26 second, a 21 millisecond trigger time. So then reverse the tape over put the original snare into the trigger of the Bell BD-80 and on a 21 millisecond delay, and you would know then that you were going to get the snare replaced. So it would be accurate, and it would be phase accurate, and it would be really good. But what a palaver. And once again, as you say, you're turning turning two-inch tape over and rewinding the spool. It's never, a, as you say, it's none of it's for the faint-hearted. And, and anything can go wrong at any time. And, right. and it's, the whole thing is always certainly with splicing, is always a completely destructive process, isn't it? That if it goes wrong, there's no real easy way back. There really isn't. There really isn't. And tape is very fallible. And I'll I'll never forget, there's a time when, because I worked for a DJ remix company called DMC, and we used to get all these these tapes over to remix. And um, we always assumed they were safety copies um, (laughs) because, you know, we thought someone in the record label wouldn't be as stupid to send us the masters. Um, But I do remember once having... Uh, I think it was the uh, multi-track for Back Together Again by Donny Hathaway uh, wow. and Roberta Flack. And I, th- I looked at it and I thought, gosh, this looks really old. It's like, it can't be the master. It's a master and master on it. And I thought, it can't possibly be the master. And then I thought, well, I'll, I'll put it on and, and, and just check. And literally kind of put it on. Thought, God, this is really old. Pressed play. And I started to see the thing disintegrate before my very eyes. Because really? not wow. only was it the master, but it hadn't been baked, it hadn't been prepared or anything. Yeah, yeah, Someone yeah. had just gone, oh, this is what they want. Wow. So, I mean, all of these things, I know for many people listening, this sounds like another century ago, but actually it wasn't that long ago. And, um, and yeah, thankfully everything's been digitized now. So 
It has, but I think it's interesting not to be, yeah, because it sounds like we're drifting off into a kind of sort of land of antiquities. But actually what is an interesting thing that I, I was, because of all of these frustrations and this these early, which, which I did find, I recognised this, these technologies as cumbersome. As you're saying, the idea of reverse reverb, or reverse echo, or trigger, re-triggering snares, or any cut and cut and paste, or not cut and paste, but cut and splice, using tape seemed crazily cumbersome and risky and and, and dangerous. So the whole idea of of when digital audio recording and editing came about, I became a complete disciple of it. I thought this is fantastic. This is absolutely amazing, and I and I do think it is. And obviously, it's incredibly convenient. But I have kind of come to realise that much as it's improved over the years and you've no longer got that kind of sort of nasty, brittle sound of early digital converters, um, there is still an aspect to working in the analogue domain that I still think is, is, is better, not because it's more simply organic or it's old-fashioned or something, but I think just the coloration and the, everything that we know about this kind of sort of constant dispute between digital and analog, there is no question there is a value to analog. And so I now run a very much a hybrid system where in my Pro Tools I'm able to feed out into any number of analog chains that are fixed items. So... They, they behave as though they're plugins, but it's actually a fixed analog chain that has a fixed gain structure, which is all logged. And so I treat it like, so it's convenient, because I know this is the thing, what we don't want is the inconvenience of tape, do we? Because I always remember, everyone thinks that the tape compression is fantastic, but I remember doing lineups on analog tape recorders, and when you do the drum track and you're listening to it, you would be switching between the sync and the repro head, and if the repro head sounded different to the recorded thing, you'd do the lineup again. We weren't looking for tape saturation, we were looking for transparency, weren't we? And that's the thing, you forget that, that actually there was no, there was no, we weren't attracted to the idea of it sounded a bit squashed and squished and a bit compressed. All the magical things that we associate with tape now were a pain in the ass back then. That meant that you weren't getting an accurate reproduction, so we'd do the lineup again. So that's... <laughs> God, yeah, that's true. I'm trying to have palpitations now thinking about tape lineup. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so you're, after Definition of Sound, you said you're moving on to that. So you're starting to collaborate with other artists as well. Is is Beverly Knight one of the first? Yeah, so what happened was that, so Definition of Sound, we got dropped and we, I didn't think I could continue. I did, it wasn't a natural thing for me. I'd enjoyed doing the production. I'd produced a couple of records for them. We formed a production um, threesome called Clark, Weeks and Spencer and that that was um, Kev Clark, Don Weeks and me that were members of Definition of Sound. Um, Kev went off to work at um, Parlophone as an A&R guy. Um, Don went off to pursue independent in his career and whatever he went on to do and I, I became a producer. What happened was that the first, one of the first projects that came through was um, was Beverly Knight and I did a remix of... Um, of a tune that she'd already had called "Made It Back," and and that was um and it was not it was meant to be a remix. It wasn't meant to be the main tune, but it was the one that radio was pointed towards, and it was based on Sheik's "Good Times" on a sample of it. And actually, it went top twenty. And actually, that was kind of and it was I didn't it was unexpected, and and I didn't really know. And it was like and off the back of that, Hardphone came back and going, "Well, could you do it again? Could you?" get her into it and I was going well I don't, don't know how I did it the first time but let's have another go and I did a track called then Greatest Day which went top 15 and um, and it was like well can you do it again and 
I said, well, okay, and we had a track called Shoulda, Woulda, Coulda. I don't know whether you remember that at all. I do. Yeah. And that went went top 10. And that was... um, and then I was kind of on, then I was rolling. Then I was thinking, right, okay, this is, this doesn't look like a series of coincidences. Obviously, any, any project and any success is driven primarily by the song and the artist. So I'm a bit part player in that. But nevertheless, I think that I'd had three singles that had suddenly been top 20. And so there, there seemed like a, a, that it wasn't a flash in the pan. And there was some, that I was able to make some kind of contribution and bring some kind of positive force. To bear on the outcome <laughs> but also if there was ever a time to have done all the experimentation and made all the mistakes and know in your heart that you had a pretty good idea of how to record a vocal beverly knight is the voice that you want to make sure that you record well absolutely yeah yeah well actually and she's such an amazing an amazing singer that obviously looked great Technique, actually, it was really interesting. I always remember that I did um, a, a record with her that was very natural. The play thing it was a track called Gold, and um, it's on my uh, first, second album, maybe. And um, and we recorded at Roundhouse Studios, and and um, and despite having all of the what I imagine to be the sort of qualifications and the know-how and the expertise as an engineer back then, I'm working as a producer by engineering my own records, and. Um, and I recorded her and she. we did all the sort of like testing out of the mic and everything seemed fine and all the meters were fine. And then she went and did this absolutely remarkable performance and everything, you said that you took the covers off, everything was smacking in the red, the lights were clearly, it was like, I clearly messed it up. She was singing far, once she put the emotion and her really go, go for it, it was a completely different experience. And I was going and she said, <laughs> I remember on the talkback going, well, that was great. That was fantastic, Beverly. I was thinking, so should, should we shoot another now? I was thinking, well, I'll frantically get these recording levels right. And she was going, you know what? I think that's it. I think that is the vocal. That <laughs> and I was going, oh, fuck, you know. So, right, and it, I was going, <laughs> I didn't really know how to do it. I was thinking, right, there's every kind of, there's a real kind of sort of schoolboy error that when the singer goes to do the take, they might sing a lot more powerfully than they had in the, and I'd really, there was no way that was recoverable. So I was going, well, look, actually, I think it was really good. Why don't we? And anyway, I persuaded her to go and do another take. And she did. And that second take is the take, thankfully. But yeah, it's a real, it's a, it's a real schoolboy error that far in. So having said that, you need to, if you're recording someone like Beverly Knight, I thought you need to know what you're doing. And clearly I didn't. No, but I think you did. I just think it, I, I think it's that thing of just, Oh, it's, it's, I mean, it's rare that any of us get a chance to work with a voice like that. But I think the, the lesson from that is always give yourself about 30% extra, extra room because you know the, the difference between us, her singing and her performing. I mean, I would have thought it's even at, with the correct levels, I would have thought that she's someone that has the potential to actually distort a microphone itself. Yeah, that's true. Let alone, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, um, it's incredible voice, but no, really, really good records. And I guess. I would make the connection there, knowing Parlophone to be as loyal as they are. Um, is that how the the Kylie connection came out? Because I would imagine that would be very soon after. It did. So it was a really, so that, so I came, so yeah, so I'd had a, obviously an element of success there. Um, and then they actually asked me, it was an interesting thing. I, I, I decided that I felt as though I was sort of on a roll and I really wanted a, I don't know why I set this ambition for myself, but I really wanted to... I felt as though having had a sort of like... I think I'd had a 
21 with sort of past the vibes from Definition of Sound, then like a 19 with Made It Back, then a 14 with Greatest Day, and then a top 10. I felt as though, look, there was, I was kind of on the rise here. Um, and uh, and so I th- I thought, oh, millennium, you know, it's a, we were so attached to everything happening, everything was going to change in the year 2000. I thought it'd be good to have a number one. And actually I was asked to do, um, you were talking about getting masters, a, a, a remix of um, Queen's Under Pressure with... Um, so, so I and I worked on that. That is actually a, a released remix, but it was going to be eventually. It was, they they pointed radio in in another one that had been actually done by Brian May, but actually it was part of a sort of a millennial thing. And I thought that actually I was going to get a number one. I thought this was a really great verse record company, loved it. But actually, it was it 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 did go out, but it wasn't the main thing. Eventually, the main release. But um, and so I suddenly felt as though I'd kind of sort of had a millennial millennium number one kind of stolen from me somehow. But then soon after that, they would go, look, we signed Kylie. Um, do you fancy working on this this track, which actually was a kind of sort of a, a, a relatively sort of slow, um, sort of soul song. Or Absol had written it. It was one of the writers on it. And, um, and, um, and I thought, yeah, so I, of course I'd be up for that. And she was at an interesting time in her career, wasn't she? Because she'd come. What had happened before was she she just started Parfum. Was she on Deconstruction before that? Yeah, there was two albums with Deconstruction, and that were um, kind of more experimental. Well, the second one was definitely more experimental. Because you did Confide in Me, didn't you? Which is uh, I did. Yeah, I did both. I did the the album with Confide in Me, and then an album called Impossible Princess, yeah. which was the one that was really, really experimental and very yeah. artistic and kind of brilliant but not necessarily for everyone and it was at the point that um everyone kind of wanted you know pop kylie back yeah so and that's very much what parlophone were were interested in as well and that was so so that so so what i had been what we talked about earlier the sort of hybridization of real musicians and digital and so forth so it's like so they said look you know would you be up for working the song and 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 i so i recorded um so the, the track was called Spinning Around, and the, and I went into a studio in London to record Spinning Around as a band to try and get sort of throw some things, kick the tires, and see what I could do with it, and see whether it could um, be sped up and something that 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 maybe it wasn't. And I really loved the idea of the song, and I really loved the idea. It was an interesting thing because they said, "Well, look, actually, Kylie's in LA, so could you go out to LA?" and um. And I was actually, for New Year and for the millennium itself, I was actually in um, Svalbard, an island north of Norway, watching the Northern Lights. And um, and I flew back from from this kind of, from the polar night, landed in, in back in London, literally kind of picked up the 24-track, oh, reel-to-reel things stuck in my rucksack and flew to LA the following day. And um and I remember just actually just before I left, uh, uh the, the, it must be the day before because it must be the day because I remember going down Oxford Street and looking at um she had a had a book was it a sort of big pink book or something just a book of her photographs of around yes. that and I remember just going right Kylie Minogue is really iconic and it made me actually really nervous I was going right okay I so I sort of like hadn't really got the measure of what I'd because I'd been distracted by other things and suddenly I was doing this thing and it. So I'm on a plane out to LA going, right, actually, this is a, quite an important gig for me. And um, and I felt as though, I felt a weight of responsibility as well. I thought, because actually 
where you'd been taken with this experimental stuff, which was a lot, very logical progression for her career. And there'd been some great stuff. And I thought Confide in Me was an absolutely fantastic record. And a really significant, it had been experimental, but there had been success there, hadn't there? Commercial success with... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's a... So I, so I it was kind of... Um, because I'd had this success with um, Beverly, they were sort of going, well, do your thing on Kylie. But I wasn't... I thought I knew what to do, but I, I there was an... I just... Anyway, I just found the whole thing sort of slightly nerve-wracking. And I was actually starstruck when I got there. We met in a restaurant on Sunset Boulevard and... I was going, blimey, this is Kylie. And of course, as you well know, she's fantastic to work with and she was great and really didn't, once once it was sort of depressurized and we were focused. And what I came to realize was that my determination to try and get records right and to to move things forward were were entirely aligned with her gritty determination to to clamber back up the ladder to, to perennial success because that's where she felt she belonged. And actually, so... So all I had to do was just kind of sort of like chase her vision and chase her visualization of where she wanted to be. It wasn't there was she wasn't a, a innocent bystander in this. She was going to be very active in making sure this all worked. So and we worked really hard on those vocals and worked really hard on just getting and, and I, there was never any. I never detected any kind of resignation or anything other than steely focus on what she wanted to achieve. That's a, that's very true, actually, in in everything. And um, yeah, and I mean, she, I've always said she's a fantastic muse. She kind of brings out the best in people. But the interesting thing about spinning around, having worked with that song for quite some time in various guises that, that I, I've done, there's there's it fits the um, what we were saying earlier about the Quincy Jones mold, whereas everything is a hook. So yeah, it's kind of like, yeah. almost like the Michael Jackson, you know, the bass line is, I mean, bass line is incredible, but the bass line is a hook, you know, the string riff is a hook, the vocoder is a hook, the BVs are a hook, like so many, even the little eighth synth at the front, you know, everything is a hook. Yeah. And then the song is amazing. And it's obviously the right lyrics at the right time. It leads back to me. I'm back. Everything's, yeah, yeah. you know, and it has the, the most iconic video and it just ticks or it's one of those seminal songs of an artist's career that just is a it just it has a, a linchpin moment that will always kind of come back and and get you your first number one i guess it did and most importantly in the very year that i really wanted one and actually when i suddenly thought it was unachievable and uh and yeah it did yeah it was my first number one and it was um and it was interesting because actually what at the time i had become more sort of uh uh, one thing that had run along this sort of development of a pop career was always an interest in, it goes back to these sort of very early days of development of the understanding of sort of what I felt was important about music. And I was also doing a lot of, I had a really weird gig for a period of time um, working for the World Food Programme, recording um, uh, music for, and doing sound design and the soundscape for... Um, sort of infomercials, kind of in, in, in small, short films that were used by the World Food Programme to create kind of an awareness on a governmental level. Because a lot of people at the time were very much aware of what UNHCR would do or Oxfam, but nobody really knew what the WFP were doing. And they were running a lot of really very important programmes internationally. And so I would be out in sort of Khmer-controlled Cambodia or Renamo-controlled Mozambique or in the war zone in South Sudan with a furry microphone recording old traditional 
songs for people to build into these things to show that and it what it what it and it ran in parallel to this having this pop success that on the one hand there's the sort of frivolity of 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 um, and the decadence of music but also how important music was and lyrics and the spoken word but most importantly music for the maintenance of of a message and culture in these sort of lost worlds of of these stricken people that were either starving or in war zones and how important music was them and these two pillars kind of ran in in tandem for me that one was kind of sort of the as I said just like the commercial pop charts and the other side I was I would be in one of these places recording something that seemed hugely important and I think that actually it's always been that thing of that sort of balance and that 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 thing in music. And those so so I was also working with um a band called Bad Martian Shree on Outcast Records along that time, which was a really important thing that tied in with uh there was a a a a, a, a British Muslim uh DJ and uh Hindu classically trained musician and a rapper at the time who was coming and guesting it was a nation of Islam. So there was a lot of kind of so it was a hot pot of of uh of of debate of where religion and culture and music all kind of sort of collided. And that ran ran in, in tandem with having uh, a number one with Kylie in hot pants and 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 and, I, and and it kind of sort of justified everything to my mind. I could see the kind of importance and the significance of both, both both I, threads. Yeah, I, I I get that, and I do think it is. You know, there's a you do need, but like I think a lot of us need need both of those things. You know, it's you would need you wouldn't you kind of need to scratch both itches. I think, and um, and that sounds amazing actually that 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 you were involved in that, and and also just to be sometimes as as record producers we can be quite insular in the fact that we're in rooms like these a yeah, lot yeah and we forget to go and see the world and i think the world inspires us to only make better records absolutely yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah and it's uh so um i did that that's good you do that um i i'm obviously not gonna i'm gonna cherry pick a few things because i can't go for everything but um I would like to have a t- quick talk about Jamiroquai because I remember the first time I heard Feels Just Like It Should and it sounded like nothing on earth. Yeah. So that was a... Uh, so so off the... Yeah, so I was doing a lot of this um, kind of weird and wonderful kind of stuff globally and working on sort of quite a lot of specialist stuff. Um, and then out of the sort of like... so So... So that sort of ascent to that number one record with Kylie, sort of, in a way, it kind of boxed off that period of my career. I, I felt as though I'd, I didn't feel as though I'd done it and I'd achieved everything I'd wanted to do, but I'd achieved that element of things. I'd sort of, I was vindicated in the fact that actually it had been worthwhile, that journey. And so I, now I wanted to go on another one and, and, and so to sort of pursued a sort of different line. And then when it came up to, um, I was put forward by... Um, by Jay's publisher to he he did Jay was considered to be sort of a bit of a handful to work with and and could I uh, bring this album together and and bring this band sort of back together they've had a bit of a break and a bit of a breather and um and so that was a really interesting um, thing for me we 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 worked on the album for about a year and a half 
at, at various places, some of it out in LA doing strings and brass. It was, it was kind of like there was a huge budget, but it would be driven very much by an a and by him himself. And so what was fantastic about it is that we could actually, it was a sort of behind closed doors record, which was not dissimilar to the way Gabriel Applin's Phosphorescent was made, this idea that actually just to shut the doors and go and make a record. And Jay was very much into doing that. And so, and we had the budget to do it. What was interesting about that, what was defining for me and a really important thing was that prior to that, I had complied with a convention that as a producer, you produce your records and then they, the record company go and commission a mixer and it would be mixed. And Spinning Around wasn't mixed by me and neither were the Beverly Knight records and neither were the um, Definition of Sound records. They were that, just that's how it worked. And same was going to happen with the Jamiroquai record. We worked on it for a year and a half. And it was now going to be mixed by Bob Power who'd done people like D'Angelo and Tribe Called Quest and... And so we had um, five or six weeks booked in the old Sony, the CBS studios in New York, and we were all put up in the Park Meridian Hotel, and the band were there, and I was there. And um, we went in, and Bob was a perfectly nice bloke, and set off mixing it. And um, we got in the studio about 11 o'clock, and 2 o'clock in the afternoon, um, Jay fired Bob Power. And um, said, you're not mixing it, and just said, that's it, you're not doing it. And I... And I and he and I had a bit of a row about this. I was going, it's all well and good, you with your... Rolls Royces in your big house going, you can just do what you want and just throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I've also spent a year and a half of my life, who the fuck's going to mix this record now? Because we're all out here. Who's going to do it? And he says, you are. He says, you, you, don't, you know this record better than anyone. He just didn't know it. He could, James going, I could tell I was, was, he wasn't going to get it right. I was going to spoon feed him every point along the way. The only person who really understands this record is you. And I said, well, I, I can't do this. I'm not equipped. I'm not a mix engineer. This level, you're a million pounds in on the budget. This can't be bestowed upon me to do this. I can't do it. Anyway, I, he, he said, you can. You're the only person who can. And that was it. And it was a massive kind of um, shift in my career that actually I thought, well, actually, without really the expertise and the know-how, it wasn't. I, that was not what I'd set out to do. But I mixed that record. And, um, and it was nerve-wracking and it was scary, but I... I did it, and I, and 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 it, yeah, it was a seminal shift for me, and it meant right, okay, well, suddenly I could actually be part of this record right up to the. And I've never been so attached to mixing that I have to mix my own records, but I've always given it a go, and if it works out to be the one that people go with, then we'll roll with that, and that's what happened on that record. So it was kind of an important marker for me. It's um, it's also I think it's really interesting because that record and that album in general has, you know, the benchmarks of, again, a really great Quincy Jones album yeah. but with the contemporary level of, you know, some of the filters, some of the things you were doing, which were, you know, of, of around, you know, even things like Daft Punk and Justice. And it has a, it was a very modern sounding classic funk record. Yeah. And that's what, and, that's what we would go for. And also we would, trying to push the boundaries on that I really wanted to work at 96 kilohertz everything was done at a high sampling frequency and this was like what was it 2004 2005 people were struggling studios were struggling to do that and especially with the so everything we would record initially would go all of the basic rhythm section was recorded onto 48 track and then back into Pro Tools at 96 kilohertz and then everything we did in 
New York and everything we did and everything. So we placed a huge, and as the album got bigger and the files got bigger and bigger, and <laughs> the sessions got bigger and bigger, the computers back then were struggling hugely to do it. But that was the, I was certain about that. I thought, right, let's get the best of everything here, the best that we know of analog, get really great lineups, really great drum sounds, but let's get that. And this is, of course, what, Quincy would have been doing obviously would have been recording onto tape but wouldn't have had the benefits of contemporary digital um, convenience that we talked about earlier so I wanted to use that I didn't want to be retro about it but I wanted to use what I thought were the best features of of my understanding of recording up to that point and that was to record all the drums and rhythm section on the 48 track analog tape push those into um push those into Pro Tools at the highest sampling frequency possible, but then mix in analog environments. But then also I was using early way of doing stemming. So if I felt I was in an environment where I was capturing something on certain monitors in a studio, either in New York or in LA, um, then I would stem everything off. So sometimes, so things like feels like it, just like it should, for instance, would go from... Uh, uh, 160 tracks down to two tracks down to eight tracks so it was, a, it was a, if you actually looked at the session it would look completely weird and completely bizarre because i was using every technique right at the forefront of anything that could be done at that time and really pushing the frontiers whilst also retaining elements of what i thought were valuable of of uh previous recording techniques so just literally just taking literally i felt as though because there was no budget constraint so i could take the best of everything and what a fantastic way to go and make a record with that in mind it really is and actually you know quite a few years before random access memories as well which was sort of absolutely a similar kind of process yeah 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 so it was a uh, it was ahead ahead of its time for sure no i love that what i've got to ask you what is what does make that noise at the front it sounds like him and a microphone distorted through something that's it that's exactly what it is yeah is it it's him just jamming and it is just distorted and i think it was through um even tied harmonizer and it's just and it just had a riff and so what i then did actually what happened was that that he and the band um went up to uh he had a place in scotland to write a lot of the album up there um and i was left really early on in when working with him with not much to go on, but that riff of him, he'd recorded voice memos and bits and pieces. And so um, they'd gone up as a band. I think I just had, yeah, um, I just had Derek and Scholl of the drummer and the, and the percussionist. And I think that we had the groove by the time Jay got back, just using that riff. So I hadn't really got much to go on at all, just that riff and and the drummer. <laughs> and so we recorded the, the bass. So, so by the time the expectation was Jay would get back and we'd have some kind of bare bones of ideas for the, for the might, might provide some of the pillars for the, for the, for the record. And feels just like it should was, was one of those based on just that voice memo, that riff. That's amazing. I love stuff like that. That's what, one of the things I love about, it. I love that like people like this podcast, but I do get a chance to ask these little questions. The other <laughs> thing I really love is that even though you know, I'm a huge fan of what you do. Sometimes when I'm speaking to someone, I just do a little double check and I get a little surprise that another one of my favorite records is, is one of yours. And I, and I don't know why I didn't know this and it's slightly obscure and I'm not sure if it comes up very often, but you produced once for Diana Vickers. I did. Yeah. Yeah. What a record. It's, 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 I'm, I'm pleased that you you recognise that because actually, so that was that was a really weird thing. So 
I've always felt as though what I what my role was in the production world was to take um, something that may not have been seen as uh, so slightly alternative records and, and but reach a wider audience. That's always been the holy grail for me. And so I tended to avoid a lot of the kind of extreme pop end of things. And so that whole uh, um, culture of kind of sort of like almost controlled pop that, that that through a television show just seemed kind of sort of I didn't know whether it sort of fitted with what I, I, I wanted to do. But but that but I liked her, I liked Diana Vicks and I liked her voice and I liked I thought it just came from an interesting place and there were some options on songs and and um and I and I felt and I, once again I was just left to do it's like well could you do something with this and could you make this work? And actually I just felt as though that launch into that chorus could i create one of the things i thought was always is always fun in music is that if you can create the sensation that the listener has got the measure of the song that they think they know where it's going to go and then suddenly it does something different suddenly it takes a left turn and you can really surprise people i always used i was just love that i used to love that when i was listening to music really i used to have this thing with a on my amplifier at home when I was like sort of seven or eight years old, that I would click into the choruses on middle eight. I would go from mono to stereo just to enhance that sensation of that explosion of it. And so that's what I did with with Once. And I just thought, well, what happens if we actually set something up that was a really good articulation, a really good movement across the verse, but it absolutely took a left turn and just blew the fuck up in the chorus. What would happen, and would it? Would I, and so I did this thing, and and the and the label going, we think this is great. We think, and then actually, no one messed it up or molested it or reduced it. Everyone, to their credit, just went with that, and um, and that, that was out of the box. That was that went to number one, just straight up, which actually was kind of a surprise for everyone, I think. And it's just because it's actually a slightly weird record. But I was really pleased with that and really proud of that at the time because it felt like a, yeah, it just felt slightly dangerous, really. I, it's still an incredible record. I remember the first time I heard it. And it is exactly that, as you say, with you've got a pre-chorus that's kind of a chorus that's that's sort of small and mono. Yeah. And then the world explodes into stereo and... I mean, obviously, you, you, you're blessed with a, a, a great Kathy and Egg song in the first place. And, of course, and yeah. And the vocals. But, um, yeah, I remember hearing it. It didn't sound like anything else. And it was... Uh, and actually, going back to that, I really liked Diana, actually, and I, and I liked the albums that she made. But even on that album, there's some great things on there. I Definitely. mean, there's a couple there's, there's a couple you've done. Guy Sixworth's got a couple yeah. of great songs yeah. on there. Um it's just a really great pop record. It is, and it and actually, as you say, quite a lot of alternative producers and artists, and yeah, it came from a good place that 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 record. And as you say, it's, it's and and actually that album that album also went to number one as well. So it was kind of and and I don't she wasn't a winner, was she? She was just part of it. She was just a contestant in the thing. So there was actually a sort of a creative and artistic merit to that. Um, and yeah, yeah, that's right. You, you tend to forget about that. That's what you wouldn't have known. It's a kind of sort of a flash out there that, that I don't think because she subsequently went on to sort of have a different sort of slightly different career as with a lot of those types of artists that hadn't necessarily had a long journey up to that point. And I think it's sometimes one of the difficulties with X Factor artists is that it was difficult to sustain a career if it had been perceived that there wasn't any artistic merit, which would sometimes be unfair. But if the... 
wider audience believe that or perceive that, then it could be as meteoric a decline as it had been a rise. And so these things tend to just exist in sort of isolation, which I think that's an example of that. A number one single, first debut single, a number one album, but barely anyone knows it, which is kind of unfortunate. Okay, so that brings us on to... These are, there's funny moments um, when you remember things, when you remember hearing records. And my recollection of this, and, and it may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure when Zane Lowe used to be on Radio 1, he used to have Hottish Record. He still does on the Apple show. And um, I remember him playing, the first time I heard Heaven by Emily Sande, I'm sure it was on Zane's Hottish Record of the day or the week or the year or whatever it was. And he played it, and I was driving home from the studio, and I just... I don't know. I just, I, I wouldn't, I don't say I crashed the car, but I was just like, oh my God. And then I kind of was so struck by it and, and how incredible it sounded. And then he was too, because he then played it again, like literally straight afterwards. So it, it just came out of nowhere. And it obviously had all of those elements of things. I mean, it, it's totally my wheelhouse because it's a beautiful song. It's a gospel vocal. It's big strings and break beats. And, it's still one of the best records that's ever made by anybody ever. So how did that record and that song come into your life? So she would have been at the time a, a, a virgin signing, I think. So went through EMI. So it was A&R by Glyn Aitkins, who I'd worked with, who'd been with Shabs at Relentless. Um, and I'd done various things with them from everything from So Solid Crew through to Bad Marsh and Shree. And so he'd come to me with Emily. I think it had been sort of a quite a sort of tricky development of how things had gone and could, and could I work on a track um, that they had proposed as the first single. And I said, look, could you just send over a clutch of different ideas and, and, and songs? And one of them was an early version of Heaven which actually had just a rotating chord progression that I just thought, I just thought it's one of those songs that the important thing is the opening line of the verse. That's the big melodic hook and riff. And those are always quite, I always think if you've got that, if you've got an, an opening line and an opening melody on the verse, all you've then got to do is journey back to that point somehow without losing people's interest or without ruining it. And sometimes, uh, let's say, a big Johnny chorus might not be what you need. And there was an example of it. But what it did need to do was progress somehow. It was a rotating chord progression. And I felt, I said, look, I think there's a brilliant single in here, but I don't think it's quite right. And and so, um, so I just got to, it was one of those things where I'm always careful as a producer. You see, you're, you're a producer and a songwriter, but that's not really what I... I'm not a songwriter as such, so I'm always very careful if I'm engaged and commissioned as a producer not to turn around and go, well, I think it'd be better if they were these chords because it can just rub people up the wrong way and it doesn't always go down well. But that was an example where eventually Glyn was going, well, look, just do what you need to do to make this thing work. And, and so... I changed the way the chords work. So, but it, all it was was a really simple set of changes to make a journey back to that verse startup again. And then, if those chords would just just move in a beautiful way, then all I had to do was kind of create a harmonically a bed. And I used Cliff Masterson, who you work with, I think, Steve, don't you? Yeah, who was fantastic. Who does that sort of? 
massive, like large string section. He does that beautifully, and it, and all all we had to do was just get these chords to just swell in, and and it was beautifully articulated, and it was a, uh, and so so I thought we were on course, and Emily was a uh, is 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 obviously a great vocalist and and if she if the vibe is right she came here and we recorded that and it took it took a while to get that vocal but it was there was something about the way she could communicate a lyric and then of course the other thing the substrate of that the rhythm section was using uh, uh the original version um was using Clyde Stubblefield's funky drummer break and um what we hadn't realized, we somehow thought rather sort of foolishly that that was almost kind of public domain. I don't know why anyone... <laughs> I think we all thought that because it had been used for everything from sort of drum and bass through to house, through to... It was just like, it's just one of those things that was out there. But actually, not only was it absolutely not public domain, but furthermore, there was an issue that was raised that there might even be a publishing component liable because there's such a strong melody within that rhythm section that it could be construed that there is... So we were going to get... And actually, Glyn was calling me up going, look, this record's kicking off. It's like we're getting played on the radio, yet we're going to get busted here because they're going to come. And So I went back into the studio. There was, we, we, we pulled that back and I went back in and um, forensically rebuilt that break um, from the ground up. And so that's not... And I see people sort of crediting that thing, saying, oh, it uses this break. But it's actually not. That is a complete ground up rebuild of that break in a state of panic, like sort of four days and four nights to get that, knowing that we were likely to have a record that was going to blow up, but knowing that we were also going to get busted. <laughs> so it's, um, and so yeah, so that's, that's, that's the story behind that. And yeah, sure enough, it went out there. I think it actually didn't get, didn't get number one, it got number two actually, which is, I would have been slightly frustrated by because I thought that was a number one record, but really great record to make. And I, I, yeah, I, I, lo I love that record. And it's uh, like with so many things like this, it's always sort of quite precarious, isn't it? Because coming up with the way that that song narrative worked, as I said, to lead back to the verse was not was a struggle to get there. To be honest, just just because it didn't feel easy. so. What I'd thought would be relatively straightforward, the execution was much more complicated, as is so often the way. Is that you think you know what to do, but how to do it becomes much more circuitous and much more challenging. It does. And interestingly enough, it is melodically the, the verse, the pre, the chorus, and the, the whatever you want to call it, the B section, pretty much all inhabit about five notes. Yeah. It doesn't actually yeah. go. So the, the rise of the song, the, the kind of dynamic of the song is, I mean, obviously it's massive and you've got the choir on it, which obviously is giving you more notes. But yeah. I often say that sometimes with songwriters. It's like it's. I mean, I actually can't get it out of my head. It's a perfect example, which lives in a world of like five notes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but I think, obviously, evoking a little, you know, a tiny bit of massive attack, which obviously is is something yeah. that we all absolutely love. But I think just the the way that the the, the strings build and that as again the, the 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 sectioning off of the thing, um, it really is a perfect pop record. And look, again, launched another career of an incredible artist that is still very successful today yeah yeah well i think that's the thing and that was always kind of sort of it's always been and i feel as though that was an example of what i always feel as though i'm trying to achieve with making records of take something that would not be seen as an obvious pop record but actually 
the holy grail always being if I can have people going, I wouldn't normally like this kind of music, but I absolutely love that record. But if 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 you can achieve that, um, and, and as I said, it's taking something that has artistic merit and certain amount of artistic and creative alternativism, but drawing a wider, broader audience in, so appealing to a broader coalition than you might otherwise have done. That's always a, a, a sort of an ambition of mine in any in any record. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so talking, so returning back to Gabrielle, talking of artists that you know you've sort of taken from inception to uh, to career. I mean, what what's your story with her? Where? How did you meet? What's the first thing you did? Where did you find each other? So we. So she is uh, managed by a guy called James Barnes, who who I had known because he had worked with Hugh Goldsmith. And so we did, um, uh, and that was another example of an artist that was, so Newton Faulkner um, was the beginning of that. There was a, there was a, that was a classic challenge for me. Everyone was going, oh, you can't possibly get this. This isn't going to be on Radio 1. You can't, this isn't a pop record at all. This is a guy, a ginger-haired guy with dreadlocks twiddling on a guitar. That's not what radio are looking for right now and i think well yeah but what happens if it was and let's make records that actually could and so it was, it was um hughes label Brightside at the time and he I, it was just a, that was a, a, a such an interesting exciting record to make because actually again we were able to just go off and do it because there was no expectation that this could really work and it absolutely did i don't know whether you remember it was a track called dream oh, catch me fantastic was, yeah and um and that was a quite a big that was quite a big top 10 record and that that album went on just shy of triple platinum in the uk now it went on to sell a million records and nobody would have expected that and james was a part of that and so he then when he left the working for major records became a manager he managed um, Gabrielle Applin and said, would I work on her first EP? And and so she was here when she was probably like 16 or 17. She was one of the first people to come when we first came in and opened the Lark's Tongue. She was one of the first artists uh, to come in here and was really, really young. And um, and we made that, um, and we made the, the English, English Rain record here. And so it was, uh, yeah, and that, that's how that started. And so, so coming back onto Phosphorescent, recently was felt like a very natural kind of spiritual return for her as a an older more mature artist now but with something absolutely something to say and, and that's the great thing isn't it with working with people that have really found their voice literally and also their agenda and what they feel as though they their con- contribution to the to the world and she's in that place now. So it was really great. It felt quite a sort of romantic. There was a lot of things that tied a lot of loose ends up with that recent record that we were back together again like 10 or 11 years later. And um, and all of that thing, as I explained before, that whole kind of post-lockdown, the coming togetherness, the humanness, the physicality of of record making in a, or what can be a physical thing in an otherwise digital artificial environment. And so all of these things, these strands came together. So that's what made work on this recent record such sort of a, a, a conclusive and romantic kind of a point in, in, in my career. I think, I think English Rain is, um, is a kind of perfect album, but, and, and it's got so many elements on it that are great, but, I feel like it it does contain a masterpiece in salvation. Right, yeah, yeah. 
And I think it's interesting how you must find this a lot. Salvation creeps up in telly quite a lot. It does. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that main piano riff does, which was done on a on my um it was we've changed the piano here now, but it was done on a sort of clunky old old upright piano here that was always um and you would know this, I didn't realise this with pianos that I thought they became sort of duller and as they got older, but they don't they become more and more aggressive and percussive, don't they, and less sensitive. And um so this was a thing that actually instead of replacing that, whenever you played it, you couldn't, people could complain about the piano because actually the action was on or off. So the moment you played it, it would go bang. And of course, that really suited that riff on Salvation because it really cuts through because I couldn't stop it cutting through. I would have probably chosen to have a more discerning, more elegant sound than it's actually that kind of quite plinky, smacking piano sound, but it just works. And um, it's just one of those examples where it's sort of happy accident that in my attempt to try to get something more warm and, as I said, elegant, it, it, I didn't achieve it. But what, what I did get there was something that absolutely gets that riff across. And Yeah, it's, it's so brilliant and so haunting. And, of course, that was a time when you um, were involved in the, the wonders of working for TV adverts as well with the mighty John Lewis. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, th- yeah. So that's um. Yeah. So would that have been around? Yeah. I guess it was all the same time, wasn't it? So um, the yeah. So that John Lewis advert was recorded originally by David Coston with her, and then what happened was that we needed to turn. They felt as though it could be a single, but and again, it's a, one of those things. Is sort of tar- tasked with what well, could this be something that is goes beyond the John Lewis ad. Could it be something that... And it was quite a kind of a tricky one because sort of Power of Love was sort of an iconic song. Could it be done in a way that um, was anthemic? But interestingly enough, her voice, she doesn't sing it. She's not kind of sort of bash it out the park kind of sound. That's not how she sings. But interestingly enough, she's got a voice that often... And this is why she's often used on dance songs, dance music, because actually much as it's quite a a warm, velvety tone, it can actually climb over productions. One of the things I'm always interested in with any vocals, any vocalist, any artist, is can the vocal, and I describe this metaphorically as clambering over, can it climb over and above the production? Because if it can't, and some vocals can't, some vocalists can't, that doesn't mean that there's anything, it just means you've just got to just kind of sort of fine-tune the production to suit that. So if someone just can't get over it, you've got to just reduce the production. So because there's nothing worse than having an overproduced record where the production is crowding out the vocal, or the vocal has to be so loud that it all and that then crushes and diminishes the production. So the whole thing just becomes unbalanced. So part of the whole thing with with production, isn't it, is to, is to try to be nuanced and sensitive to getting the heat of the song across and getting it to communicate, and most importantly, getting the vocal to be able to communicate that lyric in a way that they're floating on the production. And I thought, could I get that with Power of Love, with her type of singing? Was that going to work or was it going to... Could it work? Because the John Lewis advert, if you remember, was just piano and her. was very... But the whole thing, surely the Power of Love, was was how emphatic that chorus is, the Power of Love. So, um, So I did really go for it. And it is a big massive um thing but uh, but i always feel that you don't when people do 
a reproduction or a version, her version of that, if they use it on X Factor or something like that, it's always a bash it out the park type of vocal because that's what you actually think that vocal is doing. But actually, that's not the way she's singing it at all. It actually sings, she sings it quite ballad-like throughout. Yet the production's kind of sort of going crazy underneath, but it doesn't feel like it overpowers. It just feels anthemic and seismic, which is what I wanted to achieve. And yeah, once... That, that also actually went to number one, didn't it? Of course, yeah. So. It, it was. I think. I think. Yeah, haunting is the word that I would sort of use for that vocal. Um, just as we're on vocals, I sometimes like to ask people this: What is your um, what, what is your process for when you're about to record a vocal? Say it's that one or any vocal. Um, as far as getting an artist in a place where they're ready to record, do you have little things that you do? just sort of make sure because obviously i've always said that you know for producers we go on to make rather records but for an artist what they do on that day lasts with them forever so are there any things that you do to make sure that 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 they are in the best possible place to record that vocal that will then become history yeah well i think that it's a good 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 question i think that one of exactly that one of the things that we have to consider is that you're a pianist, and so you can, but I, I'm not. But I can play C major 7 and probably make just that chord sound as good as you can. I just can't change the next chord, won't sound as elegant, the change won't sound very good. But that's the thing with a instrument that's a physical manifestation of that sound, that there is no, and that's the same thing with sampling and digital recording, and also the, the fact that actually we can go back on ourselves and just keep things going. A vocal is obviously a combination of emotion and biology, isn't it? If somebody doesn't feel right or they're not communicating the, the lyric correctly. Or they're, they're, so there's a lot of reasons why something won't be as good as it could be. And my task, I always feel as a producer, is to make sure a vocal and a vocalist is getting the absolute best version of themselves possible. So the first thing I always remind anyone of is that it's not this day. If we don't have, Unless we're really under pressure from the label, I always like to think that this is not. This doesn't have to be anything. And what I do is make sure that if I've got the time and the opportunity to do a mic shootout, I will. I tend not to let the uh, technical process interfere too much. But if we've got space, like for instance, obviously if I'm doing an album with someone, I'll literally do a, every mic shootout because you can throw up some unexpected things then. But obviously if you're under pressure from a, in a certain time pressure, I won't do that. I'll try and make an educated an informed choice as to what I think the mic, right microphone and right mic chain will be. But then once in that position, I'm always quick to remind artists that they don't have to deliver there and then. And we'll just make, I'll always make the time up to do it again. And in fact, if I feel as though there's anything missing, then I'll always want to do more sessions. And we'll just go at it again and again and again and again until, not to the point of exhaustion, but to the point where and I always feel this is the case, and it's quite easy to identify, really. When you're recording, and sometimes consummately able singers can be the perpetrators of this crime, that actually, because they're really, really great singers, they can sing and be thinking about the price of fish and chips. And so it doesn't evoke the right emotion. It doesn't do the right thing. Whereas actually other artists... I remember, for instance, working with, let's say... um. John Newman with Rudimental or on his solo stuff. John is somebody who is absolutely driven by vibe. And if he's not on point and he's not there, it's quite apparent. It just isn't that great. And then suddenly when it is, he communicates to a 
broad audience, exactly. And so it's easy to identify. You, you're either on or you're off. And so you can record four dreadful vocals and then the fifth one, you're going, oh my God, that's fantastic. Whereas actually working with an Emily Sandy or a J.P. Cooper or something, these people that, that can sound absolutely fantastic, whatever they're thinking about. And that becomes more of a challenge to spot whether they're actually really communicating that lyric. And so that's what I'm always looking for. So it's basically to depressurize the session, but to also remind an artist, either in vocals or indeed in anything, that we're not accountable to each other. Nobody's singing or performing for me or the record company or for anyone. We're accountable to the music we're making. That's the bit that's going to outlast us. And so to try to just reduce the impact and the significance of the recording process and certainly reduce the significance of me. I am merely there as a facilitator to press the record button. And it is just there to just go, look, actually we're here to sort of create something that's of a higher power, a higher value. And and to, to remind people that, but not in a crushing, oppressive way, but in an elevating way. But that's the thing, to always depressurize, to de-technicalize the session where I can. So I've got the chain set up, everything's working as much as possible and as good as possible. And obviously that's what I'd failed to do in the Beverly Knight example I gave earlier where I fucked it all up. But if that isn't the case, and obviously I learned from that. So everything should run smoothly. But if I have time to do, you know, not that a poorly, a, a brilliantly recorded poor vocal performance is poor. A fairly poorly recorded brilliant vocal performance remains actually brilliant. So great performance, great vocals great emotion will transcend most technical failures within reason. So that's also the thing to bear that in mind from a technical thing and not let the technical process interfere too much. Having said that, microphone choice, huge difference. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you here on a, a Neumann 87. This has very precise characteristics, the slightly elevated low end. It makes people, I remember sort of noticing this years ago, it can make people sound younger than they'd actually are, weirdly enough. And other microphones have a sort of a dustiness and a smokiness that have certain characteristics. Also, and ribbon microphones have a sort of a, a warmth and, and other kind of sort of 80s, uh, latter days of tape, but the height of microphone technology is, is things like AKG 4 and 4 sound bright and very broad and not necessarily very contained. But I don't know, there's a lot of interesting things. I think that actually a lot of informed prior knowledge can help you make an educated guess of mic choice. Um, and they're everything from distance through to recording and to what that chain that in, what choice of microphone amplifiers am I going to go via a Neve? Uh, I've got a Fairchild here. Will I go through that? We'll put vocals through across heat and across valves, which was important, for instance, on phosphorescent because the whole physicality thing, I wanted to introduce heat and valves to that recording chain so the vocals were all recorded across valves. Um, so these kind of choices, but not to let, uh, the technical thing interfere with the creative and the performance process, which are paramount importance. I think that's really good advice. And I think the interesting thing for record producers or anyone listening that is a record producer or wants to become a record producer is the musicality, the musicality and the technology is part of the job, but the psychology is a huge part of the job. The big and as you say, job. putting someone in a place where I mean, it, it's sort of on them as well. I do think, you know, there are some singers, not everybody has to do this, but there are some singers that benefit from, you know, have doing a bit of a warm up, knowing the song 
really intimately and well is good, yeah. which is, I mean, sometimes it, that works in a different way, as in when someone's just written something, the vocal they record is just the best one they're ever going to do. But, um, but yeah, I think that taking the pressure off and it, it is fantastic because you, you don't get any of that red light syndrome and it's just, we can do this today. I, I was recording something last year with someone and the first day they came and, and it was great. And the second day within 20 minutes, I just said, no, not, not today. Go, go, go back home chill out do some things you know play with the kids do whatever you got to do come back tomorrow because it's just not there and i think as a producer it's important that we're able to spot that i think part of the whole sort of uh uh thing that underpins production is you none of us are uh, infallible we can't we're not beyond making mistakes but i think you need to uh induce a sort of a, a, a faith and a belief in your artists or whoever you're recording that you're going to make the right decisions most of the time. So if you say, look, I think you were flat there in the second verse, then, you know, they can go, I don't think I was, I'd like to hear that back. Or you assume that they're actually just going to go with the flow and there's a kind of sort of clear command structure and a kind of sort of synergy to working where people will accept what you want to do. And I go with that and going, look, actually, we'll record this in however you want to do it. I've recorded people lying down. I've recorded people in the dark. Um, Gabrielle, for instance, decided that actually because I, she'd done a lot of this work at home, sitting in a room with a piano by herself. So I set this up. So she did a lot of that recording um, by herself in, in this room. When I set the microphone up, not similar to how we have it here, got her to use, um, she'd use Pro Tools. So and she, what she wanted was to be isolated, sitting down, alone and with a dog so i see we're able to provide that and just send her a dog in and then she would record her vocals that way so she wasn't then because there is always a possibility that your mere presence is having some influence now sometimes that can be positive because actually it the artist has, has someone to perform to and there's and there's also that kind of as you said that's that's that synergy but at other times it can be feel restrictive and oppressive so in which case i'll leave i'll be happy to leave the room if it works better that way around sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't that's great yeah i mean all in all it's every artist is different and i've exactly the same i've had artists that i work with that do want an audience and i have artists that i work with that want every single light in the room turned off and they're yeah. just in a space and they just want to disappear off into a world and and you and i have i think exactly the same goal with a vocal which is above everything else, believability. Yeah, yeah. I never record now. Um, I have a separate live area here, but I never record vocals in it. I've always, for years and years, recorded, I want to record in the same room. So this room is obviously sufficiently sounded to be able to do that. But I think that if I'm, I'm either not going to be in the room, in which case the artist should be in the control room, or I am going to be in the room and they're going to be with me and there's going to be that immediacy, that communication, that physicality again of, of proximity, I think is important. I, I, I haven't recorded a vocal vocalist in a booth for years. If there is a booth, I'll say, just can we just rejig the microphone and bring that into the control room? Because it's just better, better for communication. And it also brings the artist back into the environment where the music is being made rather than going into a separate space to go and perform in isolation, which I think can create that kind of fish tank effect where where having been on the other side of the glass as a performer, you can see everyone sort of communicating in the control room and going, and then the talkback comes down and go, yeah, we think it's all right, but can you do it again? <laughs>
Yeah, no, it should, I don't think vocals should ever be a group activity either. I feel like yes, it's exactly, a two-person yeah. activity. Yeah, it's, yeah. You don't, you, yeah, you don't want to, you know, don't want the X Factor judges in the studio going, yeah. And also the worst thing for any singer is when they can see people talking, but they can't hear what they're talking exactly. about. Exactly. That's why I talk about the fish tank. And I just think, yeah, I just couldn't. Being, having been on the other side of the glass, it was one of the worst experiences of that kind of recording process. I just thought, this is awful. What are they thinking? Or the worst thing is you see them all shaking heads going, no, they go, yeah, we thought we thought it was pretty good. But yeah, it's like, it's just, you just don't want that. You want to be a part of that. And there's the communication and feeling secure and safe is you're only going to get a great vocal if, or a great performance out of any instrument instrument or vocally if, if somebody feels completely comfortable to be able to push the sides and to be able to expand into that space and i think it's a challenge for any of us to make sure that we're not in any way providing any level of restriction and um and sometimes sort of a level of success and experience can be daunting for a young artist i can see that that's why i'm always like a great pain to go Look, you're not singing for me you're you, this is something bigger and broader than that. And so, if, as I said, if, if leaving the room helps there, I'll do, I'll do that. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, uh, just to sort of finish off, I've got, there's lots that I haven't been able to talk about, but I, I would be remiss if, um, if I didn't talk about Tom Walker, because I think, you know, again, you've had this knack of whether it's something you've att- wanted to do or something that's just happened to you, but you've had this knack of finding incredible talent and working with them from a sort of almost the beginning and nourishing it. And Tom is one of these people that I think there are, so, there are a lot of artists that come out now and someone go, Oh my God, have you heard this person? And I was like, Oh, they're amazing. And I'm always sort of going, well, are they though? I mean, are they amazing, amazing, or are they kind of good for now? As in, do you see them selling out arenas in five, six, seven, ten 10 years time? And then they normally stumble and go, oh, I'm not so sure. Tom Walker is one of the artists that I think will absolutely be doing that because he has everything. He's a great songwriter. He's an amazing singer. And he has got a fantastic fan base and he's the real deal. So yeah. again, had it, I'm guessing is that relentless again that came to you with that? That was the connection there. So it's the interesting thing as you were saying with with Tom because Tom's fantastic Tom's great and actually I'd worked with it was really interesting I'd worked with a band um, that had played um, where were they playing it was a was it a Coke I can't remember where the venue was and I went to see them and I, I felt as though it was a bit di- like the week before and I felt as though sometimes if, you, if I'm making records, I'm involved in the record-making side of it and obviously not related to the live side of it. And I just become a punter when I go to see things live. And sometimes that can lead to either kind of wow or disappointment, depending on where they are in their career cycle, and also whether they're actually able to do things live. And I'd been to see this band a week before that was something I'd worked on. And I thought, mm, I kind of wish I'd seen it live before because it wasn't actually that great. And so I went down to Coco to see Tom the week a week later, and I hadn't seen Tom live at this point. I was thinking, well, what would I expect? What's it going to be? And actually, within 15 seconds of coming out on stage, I was going, this guy's just got it. It was completely in the moment. He was bouncing around on stage, playing a guitar solo. And it, just had, it just had an instant bright, shining light, and that's how he works live. He's great live. And um, and I just think that actually I'd... I'd I did actually wait some time. They'd, they'd actually asked me to look at Tom a bit of time before, and there was a similar kind of thing to Newton Faulkner that 
I'd been asked to look at him some while before. And sometimes you need to sort of wait on something. There is a risk that artists don't come back and that actually they... But sometimes if I think that something's slightly too early or, or then if I have the opportunity to, I'll wait a while just so that actually they can find their lane and be a bit clearer as to who they are. Because... All artist development involves a certain amount of experimentation. A certain amount of experimentation is identifying what works and what doesn't for them as a creative person and also what connects with their audience. But I just think it's just great. And I had the, yeah, had the opportunity to do a few few tracks on that that record. And I've worked with him recently again. And um and we did a similar similar kind of thing to how we were working with Gabrielle. They had the band here and it was fantastic. He's he's great because he's a great he's not just a great songwriter and singer he's a great studio musician as well he's got a particular style on the guitar and he's fantastic to record and I think that actually in many ways Tom Walker hasn't realised hasn't reached that, that kind of apogee yet he hasn't got to that point that I think he will where he's not just an artist that sings on top of other people's productions he's got a production vision and a, an artistic a vision for himself, and I don't think that's entirely been realised yet. I think he's, I think is, and I mean that in a positive way. I don't, I think he's been making great records, but I think he's got a, something really great inside him. I do too. I do too, and that's why I think it's got that that magic word longevity. Yeah, as in, there's a career. It's not a an instant thing. It's 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 building, and it's a career, and there's talent to back it up. So. Um, no, I've, I've I've loved those records, and I've loved what you've done with him. I think um, there was there's obviously people that I've unfortunately missed due to time. Um, specifically, JP Cooper, who's just one of the best singers this country's ever present produced. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what a privilege it must be being on the other end of someone singing him singing on a mic. M- amazing. Yeah, and um, and what a great great guy, and what an interest. Because so 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 JP Cooper came to me. I I I. Came it was such a natural thing. I came across JP on 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 YouTube just randomly, just this bloke singing in a bar, just going, "Well, this this guy's absolutely fantastic." And he came here. He came down from Manchester. He was living at the time. Came down to see me, and I and we just hadn't got the resources to to do anything at the time. We couldn't really sign him. We couldn't really do. And so I was going, "Look, with I think you're absolutely fantastic, and I don't know how we can make this work right now." but will work at some point in the future. And then without me bringing... It, 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 he signed then to Ireland. And um, then some while later, yeah, obviously we ended up... There was a beautiful aspect of synchronicity. It was like two two years maybe later when Lou would call me up going, look, could you have a look at this guy? And JP's back in the studio with me and I'm recording him and going, right, okay, well, this is... This is this. It felt great. It was a yeah, full circle to something that had happened that... that, that had happened totally organically in terms of our meeting and our original connection, but hadn't happened um, in terms of record making until he was actually signed. So it's a yeah, but he's he's absolutely remarkable, a remarkable singer in terms of how to evoke emotion and communicate. That's 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 what you want to be, isn't it? And that, and, and he's somebody that has uh, he's not shied away from commercial success, but it's never been his central ambition. It is about singing and about music. And again, he's not somebody that looks like a pop star or sounds or feels like a pop star, but actually has a lot of commercial success because he's just so fucking brilliant. And that's 
that's great, isn't it? That's what you want. That's kind of, it's a vindication for everything we're in pursuit of, that ultimately greatness prevails. Greatness prevails. He's amazing live as well, which is, which is incredible. So, so it brings us back up to now. Um, I'm sure you're busy as ever. I've, I just saw you for, well, the last couple of things you did with, were with Cat Burns, which again is another artist that has just completely put all the work in. Everyone, everyone always feels like an overnight success and they're never an overnight success because there's a lot of work that goes into it before then. But, um, again, s- someone else that obviously sort of came to you and another, again, another, you, you have the, this knack of working with really, really fantastic, authentic, honest artists. Well, I think that's the thing that sort of, yeah, underscores what I'm trying to do. If you're working with people that inspire you, then it's, it, then it makes the process easier. And I try to, I try to do that. And it's like to and also to just tie a lot of interesting things in where things are, people or artists have something to say. The thing is with Kat is that she has got something to say. She's got, she's, and she's using her voice to say that. And I think that rather than just it being a TikTok moment, um, people are, are, are realizing that there's something of greater depth there and something that, as I said, if someone has something to say and they find a way to say it through music, then again, you can have longevity and you can create kind of career artists from that. And and I think that also, it's interesting, I'm working at the moment with um, a, a, a Tajik artist, an artist from Tajikistan. And um, she was the most recent Russian entry for the Eurovision Song Contest. She emigrated to, didn't emigrate, she went to Russia as a refugee in the 90s because um, Tajikistan went through a civil war. And um, and she's uh, got a very strong proponent for LGBTQ rights and also peace and is, is, is a, um, a, a goodwill ambassador for... United Nations and things. It's quite a controversial character in Russia and obviously Russia also banned from Eurovision now. So and I'm working with her on a a, a song that we recorded several years ago that's actually an anti-war and a, a, a thing for sort of promoting peace. And it ties in a lot of interesting things for me. And so it's incredibly authentic, incredibly clever, global woman with who's very courageous and very brave and i want to go out to to shanby hopefully to record her and it just brings things sort of full circle for me that ties in a lot of loose ends that i was mentioning before of this sort of sense of 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 of, of making things and working on music that is really worthy and right back to what i was saying at the beginning this sort of original portal when i could sort of see through this window of either pirate radio or or or, or, or kind of sort of dissent and subversion and what that meant and the cultural importance of that. And I see that thing sort of coming around. I think that we have music at its best has always been when it has something to say and when people have something to say and use that as a medium, not to make it overly political, but to maybe inform and just move things along. And, and, and that's what I feel as though my... Um, agenda is now at this point in my career to kind of keep and maintain that and so to just be aware of where we can make a positive contribution i agree and you never know who's listening and how much that means you know as much as we hear stuff and you know you can hear stuff on the radio you can look at stuff on tiktok and everything as you say when you're if you get someone that's in you never know what situation they're in you never know how they're going to find the song that you've made 
and what it's going to mean to them and how much it's going to potentially change their world. And, and, and in these, in some cases, even give them a, a sense of courage that maybe they wouldn't have before. Absolutely. And, it's it's and, an interesting, um, thing. The little kind of sort of story. Have we got time? See, we got I, absolutely. So, um, this sort of, uh, belief that I developed as a young age that music was this sort of force for good and, and uh, a force for progress and it was of, of great cultural significance and, the, and I said this sort of echo of the 60s and this this change that occurred across that period of how much um, music was a, a sort of backdrop more than a backdrop a, a sort of a leading from the front from it in many ways and I think and I, I I went through this uh this unshakable faith of mine got did get shaken like a, a year or so ago where actually there was a kind of want to, we've all had fights with A&R and record companies where they're trying to sort of, they think they've signed an artist and then try to manoeuvre it into something that they think it should be and that old. And once again, I was having this battle with something where not only were our agendas not aligned, but I felt as though the label were actually doing something that was really quite corrosive and destructive and... I've always had this issue with, um, I try not to get into fights too often, but if I'm pretty 100% confident I'm right on something, it's really difficult. Otherwise, you end up with this situation, I always sort of explain it as this, is that if I'm going, look, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and the record company are going, well, no, 2 plus 2 equals 6, I'm going, look, you're wrong, guys, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and then eventually I'm sort of browbeaten into a position of compromise where we make 2 plus 2 equal 5. And you're thinking, right, well, I, I really don't want to do that. And so I found my sort of faith in it all a bit shaken last year, and it tied in with a load of interesting things, points in my family. My father died, and um, and suddenly I felt as though, was my unshakable faith in this amazing medium that we've spent our lives committed to, suddenly just it felt frivolous and flimsy and decadent, and just everything that I thought was great about it, suddenly just I was thinking, has this all been pointless? And at a time when I felt I needed to divert my resources elsewhere to my family and things. And suddenly, just I questioned it. For the first time in my career, I just thought, has it been pointless? And am I done here? And I um, went to see... My, my dad was an, an, an atheist, but nevertheless wanted a church funeral. And so I went to see the vicar of this his local church in this village. And um, and he, we had a really interesting discussion. I thought, well, here I am in a church, and I'm, I'm, I'm not religious at all. And... and um, but here was this, this man talking about the thing, and and, and I, he, we were just talking about a conversation about kind of sh- shaken faith. And I said, well, as it happens, I'm at an interesting point in my life and my career because it's... And I thought it was quite interesting talking to a man of faith about this thing. And anyway, he said something to me. I was saying, this is a man, he's a, he's a vicar, he's got a dog collar on, he's a man of the cloth in a church. And he said, um, and it was such an epiphany to me. He said... Um, well, actually, I'll be really honest with you. My faith was shaken a few years back, but I came to realize that my first God really is music. And I was going, wow. It was like a bolt from the blue. I was going, wow. And it it changed everything. It just realigned everything. For just that moment, it was such a powerful thing. that There's this man, uh, a man of the cloth, who, and, and obviously religion is a bit like music isn't it it's more than a vocational choice it's a lifestyle choice you don't stop believing at six o'clock in the evening in the way that we don't stop believing or loving music at six in the evening it's a everything it consumes everything and for this man to reveal that actually his first not his first love his first god was music i was thinking that's an incredibly and it and it and he was basically what he was saying was 
don't give up, that actually this is a really, really powerful, powerful, important thing that we do. And it just realigned everything for me. My planet's just all realigned and I'm back on course. I just thought, right, I'm committed to this for the rest of my life and the rest of my days. But I needed that amazing thing, that, 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 that realization, that affirmation that this is important and that what we do is important. And which goes back to something we said before we started here, Steve, what you're doing here is also important that you're actually documenting this and this background to what we're all doing because who else is doing it? You know, there are podcasts, but it's great that, and so really pleased that I've had the opportunity to have this discussion with you. As I might, thank you so much for sharing that. That's, uh, that's, that is incredible. And, uh, yeah, it is. It is. It is important. I think we've all we've all had those kind of moments along the line, but um, we're very privileged to do it. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's wonderful to catch up with you. I've since realised that we don't live too far, so I'm going to have to come and see you and the ducks at some point. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting actually. Since that time, there's been an interesting sort of development. Obviously, we're into sort of conservation here, and the ducks have had a rude awakening because we've had a family of otters move in. Oh, do you know what? I love an otter. Do you? I've been saying it's, yeah, I, it's, that's like, I don't think I've ever said that out loud before, but <laughs> the only reason I say it is that I'm not a particularly massive fan. Like I don't do the too much of the, you know, I certainly don't go anywhere near, much near TikTok, but I found for some reason, and I don't understand why this has happened, but there's been quite a lot of otter content on my Instagram reels. Right. Wow. They're quite amazing aren't they they are amazing and fearsome predators as the ducks and the fish oh, nice. oh yeah not so good for ducks yeah okay so it's been um yeah but that's a, that's an interesting it's, a, it's just a, look i think that we've we've accepted what we're trying to do here is create new environments of sort of areas for natural for potten pollinators for insects hares rabbits deer birds we've got kingfishers down at the pond here now and everything so we've just tried to let that the, the, there's no chemicals that go on the ground, there's no cultivation here, and all of the land is put over to conservation. So there's a natural ecosystem develop, developing, and that obviously has some uh, interesting outcomes. And one of those is otters moving in for the first time in 60 or 70 years in this area have, um, yeah, taken the ducks to task. And have, you've, you've attracted the otters. Yeah. <laughs> it's come to it. Now, I, I listen, mate, I, I absolutely love what you're doing with that, I think, with the studio and the, and the off-grid and everything. It's... It's it's admirable, but it's also something that you can you can tell that you're very passionate about, and uh, it is important in many many in, in in so many ways. So, um, but listen, thanks so much for um, chatting today. It's been really really wonderful to talk to you, and uh, yeah, let's stay in touch. I'm I'm now going to come and see the ducks and the otters. Yeah, and you absolutely. Yeah, you're always welcome, Amazing. Steve. All right, thanks so much, Mike. All right, thanks Thank very you. much, Steve. Thank you. <laughs>